that missed the playoffs and just discuss their outlook heading into this offseason. We just had the draft lottery. This year's draft order has been set. The Pistons take the number one overall pick. The Raptors jump up from seven to four. The Magic take the Bulls pick. They have five and eight. The Warriors take the Timberwolves pick. They have seven and 14. So let's start off talking about those Warriors. Obviously, the biggest thing heading into next season for them is the return of Klay Thompson. How healthy he's going to be and what version of Klay we get ultimately is going to determine the ceiling of this team and whether or not they're going to be a legit contender next season. I think we can expect Klay to come back and be mostly himself. You know, maybe he doesn't play back-to-back right away. Maybe his lateral quickness isn't quite the same. But for the most part, I expect Klay to be basically the same player when he comes back. It's going to help Curry out so much just to have another legit scorer out on the floor with him. However, I don't think just Clay coming back is enough to elevate the Warriors from a play-in team to a finals team. I think they got to find something to do with, with Kelly Oubre, whether that be a sign-in trade or trying to bring him back in a new role because his addition last year didn't really have the, the impact that I think the Warriors were hoping for. They essentially spent $70 million in luxury tax money to bring him on, so clearly they see some value in him, but it didn't really seem to work out on the floor last year. But they definitely need to do something with that asset slot, whether it's trading him for someone else or just finding a way to make use out of him. Personally, I think they should find a trade partner for him. I don't really think he fits in with the nucleus of Curry, Clay, and Dre. And I think there's decent value for him. He's still pretty young. He's still an effective player. So if they can find a way to sign and trade for him and bring in more of like a, a complimentary wing player, someone that's just going to space the floor and guard multiple positions... I think that's a better fit and a better use of their money. I also think they should look into trading at least one of those draft picks that they have in the lottery, as well as James Wiseman. I've been pretty skeptical of Wiseman, uh, basically since the draft process last year. I didn't see him as one of the top three players in, in last year's draft. And while I do still think he has a really high ceiling, he's not going to reach his potential anytime soon. He's definitely a long-term project. And so he really doesn't provide much value for the Warriors as is. We saw Bam Adebayo in the bubble last year, and we're seeing it with DeAndre Ayton now. But it's not that often that young big men can make a huge impact in the playoffs, especially on a team like the Warriors, who have a lot of complicated offensive sets, a lot of complicated defensive sets. It's a lot of moving parts. And for a young guy, especially someone who hardly even got to play college, it's a lot to ask to expect Wiseman to really be a contributor for this team, especially because I don't really think his skill set meshes that well with Curry, because Curry is someone that likes to move the ball a lot. He moves off the ball a lot. James Wiseman, to me at least, is someone who plays better when he can sort of hold on to the ball. He, he seems to be more comfortable when he gets more time with the ball rather than having to make quick decisions, which is to be expected. You know, not a lot of young bigs can read the floor that quickly and, you know, make a play within a half second every time they touch the ball. So ultimately, I think they're better off trading him. I think that combined with the lottery pick, that's pretty high trade value right there. I, I don't know if they're getting Bradley Beal or one of those big time fish, but they should definitely be able to add a contributor, at least one with that trade package. If they can combine James Wiseman and a lottery pick for like a Jeremy Grant level talent, doesn't necessarily have to be him just throwing that name out there, but sort of like a fourth or fifth starter type of guy that fits in well between Clay and Draymond in the lineup. And then maybe use one of the two picks to add, you know, a high impact rookie like a Corey Kispert or maybe even uh, Davion Mitchell if he's available. I think that right there would really shore up Golden State's depth. Their bench last year really wasn't up to par. Juan Toscano Anderson was a great find. I think guys like Mikhail Mulder, Jordan Poole, Damian Lee, like these are guys, but I, I think they need an upgrade. And so moving off of Wiseman and one of those picks can help them get there. Now looking within the roster, I think by all means we should expect Curry to have another MVP level season. Like I said, I think Clay will come back fairly close to the player that he was before, especially given the way KD's come back. I think they've molded Wiggins into a really solid role player that fits in well. One concern I do have though is just the the one concern I do have, though, is just the level that Draymond's going to be at. 
He was able to sort of bounce back this year when the Warriors were more competitive, but I worry that he won't quite be the same player. He's definitely never going to be the player that he was in 2016 ever again, but I'm definitely not 100% convinced that he's going to replicate even last season's performance. Draymond's only 31, about to be 32, but he feels a lot older. He's got a lot of miles on him from all those finals runs, and I wouldn't be surprised if he takes a step back. He's like a step slower next season. Maybe that's just me projecting, but I do think it's something to keep an eye on, something that the Warriors should be thinking about. He's definitely going to be a high-level player, don't get me wrong, but I'm just talking about in terms of who the Warriors are going to play at the five down the stretch of close games or in playoff games. I think Dre can handle it in stretches, but against guys like AD, Jokic, or Embiid if it gets there, meaning if the Warriors get to the finals with the Sixers, I'm not sure that Draymond can really hold his own against those type of guys. We saw him sort of dominate AD, honestly, in that playing game this year, but I'm still not convinced that he can really play full-time five for the Warriors next year. Given the level of competition at the position, you know, we're seeing Aiton take it to a whole new level right now in these playoffs. I don't think Draymond could, could guard Aiton, to be honest. So I think the Warriors at least need to think about picking up another seven-footer. Kevon Looney's decent, but I don't really think he's stopping any of those bigs I just mentioned either. And Wiseman sure as hell isn't doing that as soon as next year either. So I think they should at least look at trying to find another big man, just another big body they can throw out there. Those are the type of guys that you can sort of find on the vet minimum even throughout the season. So maybe that's the route they go. Bringing back like a JaVale McGee type, I don't know if he's, you know, he's probably washed at this point. But that type of player, I think, is, is someone that they should look to add. But other than that, I think the Warriors are in a really good spot for a lottery team. Obviously, when you have a generational talent like Curry, you're always going to be at least in the mix for a title. And now, you know, you get two Hall of Famers alongside him with Clay coming back. So the Warriors should be competitive next year. I don't know if they'll be a home court advantage team. I think they'll definitely be in the mix for that fourth seed, just depending on, you know, what direction a few teams go this offseason. But honestly, as it stands right now, I think you got to give the Warriors at least the fifth best odds to come out of the West. You know, you look at the Suns will be back. The Clippers will be back if we can assume that Kawhi resigns, which by all means, I think we should expect that to happen. The Lakers will be back in the mix. The Nuggets with Jamal Murray getting healthy, depending on when he returns from that ACL tear. Those four teams, I think, are pretty solidly above the Warriors, even if Clay comes back pretty close to 100%. But if we're talking about a playoff series, I absolutely like their chances better than the Jazz, better than the Blazers, no matter what they do with Dame, and probably better than the Mavericks, too, unless they can turn Porzingis into, like, a real second star for Luka. So I think the Warriors are in a good spot. You know, they got some changes they need to make, some decisions that have to be made, you know, with Wiseman, the lottery picks, etc. But I think they're in a good spot. I'm going to talk about the Western Conference first in reverse draft order and then move over to the East. So next I want to talk about the Spurs. Spurs are a team that really just are stuck in the middle, I think more than probably any other franchise right now. During the bubble, they ended their 22-year playoff streak and now they're on a two-year postseason drought, I guess. It's not a drought, I mean, come on. But they're really stuck in the middle and they got to decide first what to do with DeMar DeRozan. I think they really have two choices here. They can re-sign him and sort of just compete for that eight seed again. Or they can find a sign-and-trade opportunity for him and build more towards the future, even if that means missing the playoffs anyway. Now, me personally, my personal philosophy when it comes to team building is if you aren't building a contending team, then you have to be just looking towards the future instead. I'm not one that really sees the value in just earning a playoff berth. I get it from a franchise perspective. You know, owners are in this to make money and playoff revenue is really important. So I understand why certain teams will compete for the eight seed, you know, like the Bulls trading for Vucevic to try to secure a playoff seed that didn't work. But I understand moves like that. Personally, I just, I like to think that I wouldn't build my team that way if I were in that position. So if I'm the Spurs GM, I'm not really looking to bring back DeRozan. I would try to get some assets for him in a sign and trade 
and build around the the plethora of young guys that they have on the roster. There's not like a blue chip guy, like a real headlining builds your team around this guy type of dude on the roster, but they have a lot of young guys that I like. I think DeJounte Murray has huge potential. That torn ACL I had a couple years ago really set back his development, but I still think he's going to reach that ceiling that he has. Derek White isn't too young at this point, but he's still in his 20s, and I still think he's a high-level guard that pairs well with, with Murray in the backcourt. I think Devin Vassell and Keldon Johnson at the forward spots is a really, really good young duo right there. Those are two high-level role players I think that are going to develop really well. I like Jakob Pertl a lot. He really emerged as one of the better defensive bigs in the league last year. And then guys like Tyus Jones, Lonnie Walker. This team has a lot of depth, a lot of young guys that I think are going to be really high-level contributors. They're just lacking that sort of main centerpiece to build the team around. And I'm not sure they're going to acquire that in a DeRozan sign-in trade, but I still think they're better off moving on from him and just focusing on the future. It's definitely in their best long-term interest to move on from DeRozan, open up those minutes for their young guys, and compete for a top pick in next year's draft. If they can spend next season just developing their young talent and you know building chemistry, and then they add a, a blue chip prospect to that mix, then I think they're set up really well for the future. Let's just say in next year's draft, they're able to add like a Chet Holmgren or like a Paolo Benchero. I don't really know next year's draft class that well. I just know those are like the two top guys. If they're able to add one of those really, really high ceiling type of players to their team, then I think they have a real future because like I said, all of the guys on the roster, I think project to be really high level role players or, you know, high end starters. So if they can just find that that franchise centerpiece, then I think they can very quickly go from being a lottery team to a contender. We know how great the Spurs developmental staff is. We know how great of a coach Popovich is. As long as they have that top end talent, I think they really have all the other gaps filled. But obviously getting a franchise centerpiece is like the hardest thing to do. So it's not going to be easy, but I think trading DeRozan and going for a topic in the draft is the best way to go. One thing I will say about the Spurs, though, is that all those young guys, at some point you have too many. And so I do think they should look into some roster consolidation. There's a whole ton of guards and wings on this roster that all deserve minutes. Even if DeMar ends up getting traded, there's probably too many players to go around and not enough minutes for them. So Maybe combining a few of those guys to maybe acquire that franchise centerpiece. I don't know if they really have the assets to go after like a number one guy. But maybe just consolidating a few of those guys on the roster. Uh, just opening up more minutes for players. Because there's a whole lot of depth on this team. And I don't think they have the minutes to give everyone the proper developmental time. Moving on to the Pelicans. I think they're a really interesting team. The first thing I had written down for the Pelicans was how long does Stan Van Gundy last? Because I made these notes like a week or two ago. He's now been fired. They're going to be looking for a new head coach. So who they hire obviously is going to have a huge impact on the future of the franchise. I think it's crucial more so than any other regular hire that they get this one right. They cannot mess this one up because they've just fired two coaches in two years. And if you give Zion four coaches in his first four seasons in the NBA, uh, for one, that's awful for his development as, along with the rest of the roster. But I don't think you can expect Zion to want to re-sign there if they can't even figure out the coach. We've all seen the reports that Zion and his family are unhappy with New Orleans. And so not being able to figure out the coach, not putting the right people in place, it's not a good look. And I, you know, I'm already tired of the Zion to the Knicks talking points, but it's going to be a very real thing if the Pelicans can't get this head coaching hire right. So it's absolutely imperative that they hire the right guy. I think they need to find someone that fits the balance between what Alvin Gentry and Stan Van Gundy brought. You know, Gentry's more of a laid-back guy. He has a lot of experience in the league, and he sort of has that laissez-faire approach, whereas Stan Van Gundy fits the, the profile of more of like a drill sergeant type coach. I don't really think either of those types 
really fit what the Pelicans need. They have a really young roster, and so they need someone that can relate to the players and you know build relationships with them on and off the court, but also get through to them and you know get them to buy in on defense, get them to play within a team concept. Van Gundy, I think, had the X's and O's, but wasn't able to connect with his players given that you know he's like a 60-something-year-old dude who hadn't coached in the NBA for basically a decade. And then Alvin Gentry, I think, honestly, just didn't really have the X's and O's part. Uh, the, the Pelicans' defense was pretty awful while he was there. It was what led to him ultimately being fired was just their lack of effort and execution on defense. So they need to find someone that can thread that needle in the middle there. I think Chauncey Billups is an interesting name, although he's probably going to get the Blazers' job, it appears. Sam Cassell could be an interesting name. I think a former player really is the way to go because that's probably the best way to relate to these players is just having someone that's also been through it himself. Becky Ham could be an interesting hire. I think obviously she's a great basketball mind and I think she's definitely capable of, of being a head coach for a team. So I think that could be interesting, but a former player is probably the way to go here. But I think maybe even more importantly than who coaches the team is deciding who is actually going to be on the team. Not only short-term, but long-term as well. The the Eric Bledsoe and Steven Adams contracts are pretty pretty bad, pretty crippling in terms of uh, building out the roster. I really do not understand. I've talked about this multiple times on this podcast. I don't understand the Steven Adams contract extension. Not only do I think he's overpaid just from a, a pure market value perspective, but he's just a terrible fit with the roster. I get why they brought him in just for the one year just to sort of help Zion defensively. But long-term, it's such an awful fit offensively, Zion and Steven Adams together. They already sort of lack shooting, and those two guys in your front court, it's just not going to work out. I really don't know what the plan there was with that one, but they need to move on. Eric Bledsoe, you know, they had to take him back in the Drew Holiday trade, but I think they need to find a way to get rid of him. The only problem being, I think the league has sort of figured him out. Uh, he doesn't really have much value when it comes to the playoffs. I mean, he just hasn't been good in the playoffs. He's a solid regular season player. He's a really good defender. But in the postseason, he's just not much of an effective player. So his trade value is definitely going to be diminished. And I'm not sure what they get back for him. But given how many young guards they have on the team, I think they need to find a way to move on from him. And speaking of those young guards, they got to figure out what they're going to do with them. Lonzo is going to be a restricted free agent. And I don't think it's a guarantee by any means that they bring him back. They've been sort of sending mixed signals about whether or not they value him long term which I don't really understand. I think he's a great pairing with, with Zion. I think in the open court, those two are really deadly. And so unless he got some sort of crazy offer above $20 million a year, I think they should absolutely bring him back. Although at the same time, if they don't, they do have a lot of depth at the guard position. I think Nikhil Alexander-Walker and Kyra Lewis are both future starters in the league somewhere, whether it's New Orleans or elsewhere. So if it came down to financial flexibility, I could see them letting Lonzo walk, but otherwise they should absolutely bring him back. Long term, though, I think one of the questions that the Pelicans are going to have to answer is, is Zion and Ingram a one and two pairing that can lead you to a championship? I personally don't really love the fit. I don't think that they really complement each other all that much. I don't think that their games really balance each other out by any means. I think they're both score first guys, both guys that want to get into the lane and finish at the rim. Obviously, they do it in very different ways. Their builds are basically opposite of each other. But offensively, I think they're fairly similar players in terms of what they want to do. They both want the ball. They both want to get to the rim. And neither of them, at this point at least, are really high-level defenders. Brandon Ingram really fell off a cliff uh, defensively ever since getting traded from the Lakers. Zion, I think, has really high defensive potential, but he's still figuring out that end of the floor. And so I definitely think uh, it, it's worth thinking about. Like, it's definitely something that the Pelicans front office is mulling over and really thinking hard about. I think you could get 
a really good trade trade package for Ingram if it came down to it. Not that they should look to trade him tomorrow or anything, but just long term, I think it's something to keep in mind. I don't love that fit long term, but depending on who they hire as coach, they definitely could find a way to make it work. Those are two really talented young guys that I think you can on paper build a team around. I'm just not sold that you could do it with them two together. Next up, I want to talk about the Kings. Uh, when it comes to offseason talk, they're always one of my favorite teams to talk about because there's seemingly nowhere to go but up, and then the season rolls around and they somehow disappoint once again. So let's talk about how they can avoid disappointing again next year. I think Halliburton and Fox is a tremendous backcourt. It's one of the best young backcourts in the NBA right now, but it does sort of leave Heald as like an odd man out. I think they already regret the contract that they gave to him, and so I'm not sure how tradable he is at this point, but I definitely don't think he's in the long-term plans for Sacramento. And if there's a team out there that's willing to absorb his contract, I think they can get something back for him because seeing as he's still one of the best shooters in the league, that does hold a lot of value. The Kings also have the ninth pick in this year's draft, and they also have to decide what they're going to do with Marvin Bagley. He only has one year left on his rookie deal, and then he either has to be extended or they have to let him walk. So I could see them packaging some sort of combination of Buddy Heald, Marvin Bagley, and that ninth pick to try and add a guy that can help them win now that fits in better with Halliburton and Fox. But the Kings are in a tough spot as a team who has too much young talent to expect to really have a shot at a top three pick. And yet they are by no means any sort of free agent destination or the type of place that a disgruntled star adds to his list of preferred trade destinations. So the Kings have to be really savvy in the way that they build this roster out, which is why I do think there's sense in trying to trade Buddy Heald, Bagley, and or the ninth pick. But I don't think that package right there is getting you like a really high level player. Like I don't think that package is enough for like Ben Simmons. I I've seen that offer thrown around a lot. I think Philly would be pretty foolish to accept that package, honestly. But, you know, a top 10 pick, uh, debatably a top 10 shooter in the league, and a reclamation project in Marvin Bagley, I think those are assets that teams will have interest in. I think Harrison Barnes is a pretty interesting trade asset as well. I think this is the year that they should move on from him. I understood the logic in not trading him at last year's deadline because they really thought they could make a push for that final play-in spot. But this year, unless things go much better than expectations, they should probably just try to find some assets for him. You know, he should be next year's Aaron Gordon, in my opinion. Now, if the Kings don't end up making any major moves and they keep that ninth pick, I think they should swing for the fences for a high ceiling type of player. Ideally, a two-way wing because that obviously is the most coveted position in the league. And it's also the type of player that I think they really need given that they have Fox and Halliburton in the, in the backcourt. I really like Rashawn Holmes as a center. So they really just need someone at that forward spot that can do a little bit of everything. Whether that's, you know, swinging for Jonathan Kaminga's potential if he were to slip to nine. Or Zaire Williams is a guy that I really like out of Stanford. I think he's a super talented individual that didn't have a good season at Stanford, but there's a lot of reasons that played into that that were out of his control. I still think he's incredibly talented. I still think he has the potential to be in that, that mold of like a, a Michael Porter Jr., a Brandon Ingram type of player. I think he can really be the next guy in that line of scoring forwards. He's the guy that I've had uh, mocked to the Kings in both of my mock drafts so far to this point. But just sort of taking a swing for someone who has a really high ceiling because that's really the only way the Kings have any shot at being a contender. Unfortunately, as a small market team, you have to nail those draft picks and end up with a star. It's the only reason why the Bucks are contenders right now. Same can be said about the Nuggets. So I think the Kings have to swing for the fences with that ninth pick if, uh, if they end up keeping it. Or maybe they can package that ninth pick with 
like a Heald or a Harrison Barnes to try to move up. I think the Cavs would be interested in trading that number three overall pick. I'm not sure if nine and Heald or Barnes is enough, but I think there's potential for them to move up. Teams like the Magic have two picks. The Warriors have seven and 14. There's definitely potential in this draft for teams to move up, and I think the Kings should be looking into that because, you know, if I haven't made it obvious already, I really like Fox and Halliburton, and so if they can add a really high-level frontcourt presence to that mix, then I think the Kings do have a future. You know, I don't want to get too optimistic about it. They are the Kings, unfortunately, the Kangs, but I, I really like some of the pieces on their team. I really hope that they can build out a nice roster. However, the Kings are not going to go anywhere. I don't care who's on the roster as long as Luke Walton is still in that chair. I was honestly pretty stunned to see that they didn't fire him already, and it doesn't look like they're going to fire him this offseason, so he'll at least make it into next season. But if he makes it through the entirety of next regular season, I truly will lose any remaining hope I had for the Kings franchise. Scott Brooks and Terry Stotts got fired, so I really don't think there's any argument anymore for who the worst coach in the NBA is. I'm sorry, Kings fans, I have to shit on Luke Walton. He's terrible. He was a bad hire from day one, even before day one, honestly, even considering him for head coach. I mean, what are you doing? The only positive I can take from this is that there's more to firing a head coach than just trying to replace him with someone better. Like, we, we do have to understand the human element in all of this and understand what it means for the players on the roster to have a coach fired. That's really the only the only silver lining I can take from him not getting the can is that, it, you know, it's not easy for, for teams to deal with that sort of turnover. You know, having continuity is really important for something like an NBA team. So that's really the only positive I can take from that. Um, and I'm, I'm just going to lean into that as hard as I can because I want the Kings to be good. Moving on, though, to the Timberwolves, they won too many games at the end of the year, and it cost them their own pick, meaning that they traded Andrew Wiggins and the seventh overall pick in exchange for D'Angelo Russell. Now, it was really a positive for them to get off of Wiggins' contract, but I think at this point, I think Wiggins helps you win more than D'Lo does, honestly. And when you look at this Timberwolves roster, if they could have added a, a top seven talent in this year's draft, that that really would have set them up nicely. But getting off of Wiggins' contract was really important for them. They needed to move on from him because... He really was just leaving a stench on the organization, even though he's contributing now for the Warriors. Just the 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 way he was not able to meet expectations with the Timberwolves, they just needed to move on from that. But ultimately, it did cost them a pick. And going back to D'Lo, I honestly think he was at his best this season when he came back from injury and was being used more as like a sixth man. I don't necessarily think that he has to come off the bench, but he's probably better off just leading bench units against other bench units. That really seems to be where he's at his best. I think he's a decent pairing with Cat. Like their two-man game is pretty solid. They're obviously friends off the court, so the chemistry's there. But over the course of 48 minutes, I think most of Delo's minutes should probably come against bench units. Whereas I think Anthony Edwards and Malik Beasley are really high-level scorers that should be more prioritized in, in terms of like getting starters minutes and those types of things. That's just my opinion. I think I'm one of the leaders of the this anti-Delo campaign here, but. I honestly think that they should prioritize Anthony Edwards over D'Angelo Russell. Now, whether or not Edwards can make that second-year leap is going to have a huge impact on how good the Timberwolves are, obviously. If he can cut down on his bad shots and really work on his efficiency, have that consistency on the defensive end of the floor, I think he's going to be a really high-level player. He was much better than I anticipated as a rookie. I didn't think he was going to be one of the best players from this draft, and it turns out he most likely will be. He just needs to cut out some bad shots, some bad habits in his game. And honestly, I honestly think you can say a lot of the same things about Malik Beasley. 
Now, he doesn't have the same potential. He's not as young as Anthony Edwards is. He's got more experience in the league, so I don't think there's as much room for improvement with him, but he has a lot of the same tendencies, a lot of the same bad habits, so there is potential for some overlap there, but having high-level scorers on the wing is really not something you can have much of a surplus of in today's NBA, so I'm intrigued by both of those guys' potential, but they definitely have to really maximize the talent if the Timberwolves want to be a playoff team. Last note on the Timberwolves, I think this is the year where Cat really has to prove that he's a franchise guy. In all honesty, I mean, I know he's dealt with a lot in the last year and a half, but to me, I think he has to prove that he's really a franchise player and it has to come this season. Outside of the one year where Jimmy Butler led him to the eight seed, Cat has not led this Timberwolves team to any level of success, and at some point, I think they have to question whether or not he's going to be their franchise guy. As talented as I think we all recognize that Cat is, at some point, that package of one or two young players and all the picks plus pick swap thing is going to become more valuable than having Cat on the Timberwolves. I'll just leave it at that, and now we'll move on to the Rockets. So Houston has the number two pick in this year's draft. They were able to keep their own pick. It was top four protected, otherwise would have went to OKC. Luckily for them, they get to keep it. They get to draft a franchise centerpiece to build around. With all signs pointing to Cade Cunningham being the number one pick, the Rockets are really on the board first here. They're going to have to decide between probably Evan Mobley and Jalen Green, two guys that I think have really high potential, could be franchise centerpieces down the line. But they're very different players. Jalen Green is a three-level scorer at the guard position who is an outstanding athlete. Evan Mobley is more of a modern-day NBA big where you know he has a lot of offensive versatility. He has the potential to be both a rim protector and a guy that can switch on to almost anyone on defense. He really projects to be very similar to Anthony Davis, whereas Jalen Green, I would say, projects to be more like a Zach Levine or Bradley Beal type of just lethal scorer. And so those are two very different directions for the Rockets to go here. And so the way that they go about this draft is going to decide a lot about the way that they build out their roster. I think it's important to note that when the Rockets did the James Harden trade, they turned down the opportunity to add Jared Allen to the team and instead flipped him to the Cavs in exchange for, I believe, a Bucks first-round pick. I know it's a first-round pick that doesn't hold a lot of value. So it was clear that they wanted Christian Wood to be their only big, and it felt as though they wanted to build their team with that concept in mind. But when you have the opportunity to draft a guy like Evan Mobley, that sort of philosophy maybe goes out the window. There have been reports that the Rockets have been interested in Jalen Green for a long time, but I think it's really wide open as to which direction they go. I think neither would be the wrong pick, honestly. I think both of those guys are really high-level talents that can be the best player on a really good team. I, for one, think they should go with Jalen Green, even though I will probably end up having Evan Mobley higher on my final big board, just because I think a frontcourt combination of Evan Mobley and Christian Wood, while super talented and super versatile on both ends of the floor, I don't know if that's the type of front court that is going to be able to compete with the the big body centers that are in the Western Conference right now. You know, Jokic, Aiton, AD. Um, those guys are both really slender when talking about Mobley and Wood, especially for a center. So I don't really think either of those guys match up well with the contending teams that are going to be in the league the next five or so years. So I think you have to keep the competition in mind. And with that being said, I think Jalen Green makes a lot of sense. Like I said with the Timberwolves, with Anthony Edwards and Malik Beasley, I don't think you can have a surplus of scoring wings in the NBA. So Jalen Green, Kevin Porter Jr. on the same team, I think that's a deadly combo. Uh, maybe not a whole lot of defense early on, but they're going to put up a whole lot of points. Those guys are straight bucket getters, and I think with Christian Wood, with Steven Silas coaching, with guys like Jayshon Tate and Kmar Jr. on the roster, I think they have the pieces to, to build enough defense around Jalen Green. 
And I also think Jalen Green, for what it's worth, has pretty high defensive potential just given his athletic ability and his desire to be the best player he possibly can be. And so just looking at what the Rockets already have going on, I think Jalen Green's the more rational bet to make in comparison to Evan Mobley. Now, last but not least, in the Western Conference, we have the OKC Thunder. My biggest question for them heading into next season is, will there be any expectations? Are they going to have a season similar to this past year where they knew they were going to be bad and they prepared for that, or are they actually going to try to be as competitive as possible? On the one hand, you know, you look at the roster and you say, this team isn't really going anywhere. But at the same time, I don't think it's good from a, a culture building perspective to be trying to lose for multiple seasons in a row. When you have a player as talented as SGA, I don't think it's good for his development when the franchise is just not looking to be a winner. I, I get that they're not going to compete for a title this year, but it just sets a bad precedent for a player that talented to just be consistently losing. Not only is it not good for his development, but I don't know how happy he's going to be being on a terrible team two years in a row. I think he knew what he was getting into last season, but it's not going to be good for his development. It's not going to be good for his long-term security in Oklahoma City. So I do think it's important that they at least set the precedent that they're trying to be the best team that they possibly can. They aren't going to win a whole lot of games no matter which direction they choose, so I think they might as well try to be competitive and try to build a winning culture. I don't have a whole lot to say on the roster itself outside of SGA. Um, I think Teo Maladon is really intriguing. I was really high on him coming into the draft, and I think he had a solid rookie season, all things considered. I think he showed potential. I was out on Poku as a draft prospect coming in. I thought he was at least two years away from ever stepping on an NBA floor, just given how skinny his frame was. But he's been, I don't want to say solid because, I mean, he was statistically like the worst player in the league. But he stepped on the floor this year and did some good things. Like he showed flashes of being a really high-level player. And so I'm sort of bought in now on his potential. I think he is definitely a long-term piece that the Thunder can develop. I think if he pans out, I think he could actually be really good. I, I see what everyone else sort of sees in him now. But other than that, there's not too much to say about this roster. I think Kemba probably doesn't get traded until the season starts because... He needs to rehabilitate his value a little bit. I think he needs to prove that he can play in back-to-backs, prove that he can have a string of multiple 20-plus point games. And at that point, he's probably pretty tradable because teams are going to need a scoring guard. There's always that lack of perimeter creation among contending teams when we get to the trade deadline. You know, Kyle Lowry almost got traded to like four different teams at the deadline because of just how valuable his skill set is. And Kyle Lowry is a different player than Kemba, but I think... In that same breath, I think Kemba can have trade value for a contending team that just needs that punch on the perimeter, whether it be the Lakers, the Clippers, or, you know, there's plenty of teams that I think this year really could have used a scoring punch on the perimeter. And if Kemba can prove that he's healthy and consistent, then he could definitely be that for a team. So that's really it for the Western Conference. I think the playoff race next year is going to be really competitive. Outside of OKC and Houston, I think every team expects to at least get a play-in spot next year. I mean, we'll see what happens. You know, maybe the Blazers blow it up. Maybe the Spurs decide to tank. But for the most part, I think the West is going to be super competitive next year. But let's move on to the East. So starting at the top here, we have the Indiana Pacers. They recently hired uh, former Mavs head coach Rick Carlisle to be their head coach. His first stint as a head coach in the NBA was actually with the Pacers about 20 years ago. So they're bringing him back. And I think it's a great hire. I think Rick Carlisle was one of the best, if not the best, uh, sort of head coach free agents that were available. And so I think it was a big move for the Pacers to pick him up because I don't really feel like their head coaching job was all that desirable given how underwhelming they were this past season. So I think getting such a high profile name like Rick Carlisle is really good for them. I think he can bring a lot of creativity and just sort of a new direction for their offense. Now, I don't think really any coach can take that core and turn them into a contending team. I definitely think they need to 
make some moves and just make some tweaks to the roster, not only just to try to get better players in there, but just to sort of just change the scheme because I really don't think the Turner and Sabonis thing is going to work out. I think it it reminds me a lot in a sense of uh, Lillard and CJ being together. Like it does work, so to speak, like they, they can play well together. They can both thrive, but ultimately having them together on the same team just puts a ceiling on how good you can be. And so even if they can quote unquote play together, I think it's just in the best interest of everyone involved if one of those guys get moved. Now, the interesting thing here is that I think in a vacuum, Sabonis is a more talented basketball player than Miles Turner is, but I think it makes more sense to trade Sabonis because I think it's harder to build a team that can win a championship with Sabonis on it in comparison to Turner. And it has to do with just the skill set that they have. Miles Turner is someone that protects the rim really well. He's a really good deterrent at the rim. He can stretch the floor out to three pretty consistently, but he's not a high usage offensive player, so he's really complimentary in that sense. Whereas Sabonis really struggles on the defensive end, whether it's trying to guard in the post, trying to guard out in space, protecting the rim. I don't think he provides a lot of value on defense. I think you could argue he's a negative impact defender, honestly, at the center position, given how how important it is to be a good defender at the center position. I think they're just better off trying to trade Sabonis if they want to build a championship team. Even if I would consider Sabonis to be the better player on his own, I think it just makes more sense to to move forward with Miles Turner. Now, as for the rest of the roster, I think TJ McConnell's season that he had was really promising. He really had probably a career year. But on the other end of that, Aaron Holiday really regressed this year. He's someone that I've been really high on since he came into the league, but he really seemed to take a step back this year. And that's not a good sign for the Pacers because TJ McConnell is going to be a free agent and he's probably going to get paid more than the Pacers want to give him, meaning that they'll probably have to rely again on Aaron Holiday to be that backup point guard. And if he can't bounce back, then they're in some trouble in that backup point guard spot. Now, I do really like Brogdon. I do really like Levert. I think TJ Warren is a consistent 18 points per game, even coming off of injury. I think he, he's going to come in and contribute once again. But this team doesn't have that number one guy. I don't think Brogdon, Levert, and I don't think any of these guys are on that level of even like a Devin Booker or a Donovan Mitchell. So I don't really see the path for them making like a conference finals or anything next year. But I do think that, you know, by hiring Carlisle and splitting up the Turner Sabonis front court, depending on obviously what they were to get back in that sort of trade, I think they can put themselves on a path towards being one of the four best teams in the East. For them, it really just comes down to whether or not they can find that that lead guy that can sort of take them to the next level. Otherwise, they're just going to be one of these teams that's sort of stuck in the middle. There's really not much else to say about the Pacers at this point. They're going to be a, a good, solid team, nothing special, um, unless they can they can trade for a high-level All-Star and All-NBA level talent. But that's not really in their MO. The, the, the Pacers historically have been this sort of middle-of-the-road team that's pretty content with being a 4-6 to six seed and like a second-round exit. So we'll see if this Rick Carlisle hire changes any of that, but... To me, there's not much to say about this Pacers roster other than they need to split up that front court and they need to find a way to get a, a, a tier one player. So let's move on now to the Hornets, my hometown team. The Hornets, to me, are at a crossroads here in this offseason where they can decide to try to add a few pieces and you know fortify the bench a little bit and try to move up the standings slightly. Or they can take more of a long-term approach and build out the roster in a way that will be ready to contend down the line instead. So one of the first decisions they're going to have to make is whether or not they're going to bring back Malik Monk and Devontae Graham. They're both going to be, I believe they're both restricted free agents, uh, but they're going to have to decide what to do with them. I think it makes sense to probably only bring back one of those guys, seeing that they really sort of provide very similar things offensively and neither of them are much of contributors on the defensive end. Honestly, for me, it would probably come down to which one's 
less expensive. I, like if they were the same contract, then I would probably lean Graham because he's a little bit more dynamic with the ball in his hands. Although you can make the argument that Monk fits better next to LaMelo Ball being that he's more of an off-ball shooter. He can come off of screens and pin downs and those sort of things. So really, I don't think the Hornets can go wrong unless they bring back both of them on like hefty contracts because those guys are not contributing on both ends of the floor and you can't be giving a whole lot of money to guys that are negative values on, on either end. There's also the question of Miles Bridges' extension. He had a fantastic fourth year in the league, especially in the second half of the year. Uh, he really exploded. He shot almost 40% from three. He honestly might have been just over 40%. But he turned into a really good shooter. He's obviously an incredibly dynamic athlete. Him and LaMelo have some great chemistry, especially in the open court. So he's definitely someone that they have to bring back. I would be a little bit worried about maybe having to pay him more than what he's going to pan out to be. Because when you have a player that gets drafted in the lottery and by all accounts, they sort of pan out the way you hope. Most of those guys are looking for contracts that generally exceed what their market value is in terms of cap space versus how much they help you win. But at the same time, you can't let these guys walk for nothing. So no matter what the number is, they're probably going to have to bring Bridges back. Uh, I just hope for their sake that his agent doesn't try to like demand a max contract or anything like close to that. I think roughly 20 mil a year is probably his value on a four or five year extension. He'll probably get more than that just because of the way rookie, rookie sale extensions work, just the way the market is in the NBA. And when you're a small market team like the Hornets, you, you got to make those sacrifices and sort of overpay for those guys. But ultimately, maybe it won't be an overpay. I still think Bridges has a lot of room to grow. He showed a lot of growth in this fourth year year so there's reason to believe that maybe he could be worth a max contract one day i just think it'll be a little bit crippling for their their future flexibility if they have to offer him 25 plus mil a year now there are two glaring holes on the roster that i think the hornets are going to have to fill uh, if they ever want to have any hopes of being a contender the biggest one is the five spot zeller and biombo in stretches aren't terrible centers by any means but they aren't going to get it done as starting quality bigs in the nba so they definitely have to find someone that can fill that, that void for them. I think they need someone that can reliably run a two-man game with LaMelo because he's their franchise guy. So I think it's most important that whoever they bring in for that center spot fits in with LaMelo. A lot of people have been linking Miles Turner to that team, which I think is a solid fit. They might be better off trying to draft someone, although there's not a lot of great center talents in this draft outside of Evan Mobley. Alperen Sengun is a guy that's been getting some lottery buzz, but I don't think his skill set fits in with what the Hornets want to do. I think they're probably best off when they're running up and down the floor, you know, LaMelo and Bridges on the fast break. And Sengun is a guy who's like a back-to-basket big. He's not really much of a high-level athlete. He's not someone that is, you know, dominating in the open court or anything like that. So I don't think he fits well. Isaiah Jackson, to me, is not really worth like a, a mid-lottery pick. I don't think he he has that talent level. He's probably more just like an energy big off the bench, in my opinion. So I don't know if this year's draft really has the guy that they're looking for, unless you're really high on like a Kai Jones, which I personally am not. So maybe a guy like Miles Turner makes sense, but they definitely need someone that can come in and play starting quality minutes at the five. The other hole that they have on the team is the half of the season that we know Hayward isn't going to play. Unfortunately, he at this point is just not someone that can stay on the court consistently. Ever since that alley-oop in his first six minutes with the Celtics, he just has not been able to stay consistently healthy. And at this point, I don't think we should expect him to be. I think we the Hornets need to sort of have a plan in place for when he's not going to be on the floor. I mean, I think you have to expect him to, to be ready for like a playoff situation. You know, you, you have him on the roster, you're paying him all this money. So he's definitely in the plans. But the fact that he cannot stay healthy definitely has to be factored into the calculus here for the way that the, the Hornets build out their roster, in my opinion. 
whether that means you know prioritizing Bridges and P.J. Washington more in their plans, maybe trying to trade Hayward potentially. I just think they, they have to keep in mind that Hayward is very injury prone, and I don't think that they can rely on him to consistently be the number two option next to LaMelo. As talented as he is, I think he is the most talented player on that team as of right now, just given that all of their other best guys are still young and developing. But long term, I don't think Hayward is a guy that the Hornets can rely on to, to be that go-to guy for them. Just, just given his his lack of availability. So now moving on to the Chicago Bulls, they traded away what ended up being the number eight overall pick, along with Wendell Carter Jr. and a future first as well. In exchange for Nikola Vucevic, uh, when the trade happened, I was pretty optimistic about it. I thought pairing two all-star level talents together was a good idea, and I thought it would help them at, at least reach the play-in tournament. It didn't work out. They ended up with the 11 seed, and they missed out entirely on any sort of postseason action. But I do still think it's a good pairing, at least offensively, like Levine and Vucevic work well together. I think once they begin to build more chemistry together, they can they can really thrive offensively. I think Patrick Williams really surprised a lot of people with how well he played right away. And I think long term, he still has a lot of room to grow. I think he can become one of those really high level two way wings in the league. But outside of that, I really don't like a whole lot of what the Bulls have going on right now. I think they're really lacking a playmaking presence, given that Zach Levine is He's really always been a score first kind of guy, even though he's more of a combo guard than a two guard. I still think they really need someone next to him in the offense that can create offense for others. Vucevic helps with that as well, but I think unless you're Nikola Jokic, I think it's really hard to build a team whose best playmaker plays at the center spot. So they definitely need someone else that can be a ball handler next to Levine that can just be can just be a playmaker. Now I think they they drafted Kobe White with the intent of him being that guy. But it turns out he's really more of a score first guard himself. And so I don't really think his fit long term makes a whole lot of sense with this team because his best role, given that Zach Levine has blossomed into an all star caliber player, is probably off the bench. And I don't think that's really maximizing his value. So I think him alongside Laurie Markinen probably need to be shipped elsewhere. I think those are two young guys that teams should have a lot of interest in. So I think they, they should be able to get something back in exchange for those guys. But I definitely think they should be on the way out if. The Bulls want to build the best team they possibly can around Levine and Vooch. Outside of finding that playmaker to pair with Levine, I think they need to find more defensive-minded guys. I think Patrick Williams has high defensive potential, but as a second-year player, he's only going to be able to accomplish so much. And given Vucevic's uh, limitations on the defensive end, they definitely need to find a front-court pairing that can still protect the rim well while also finding uh, the ability to defend on the perimeter which of course is super hard to accomplish. I think every team would love to have Jeremy Grant as their fourth or fifth starter, but ultimately that's just hard to accomplish. It's not easy to build that level of team. So they're going to have to find some guys around the edges that can sort of just fill in those gaps. If they can do that, if they can find just role players that, that complement Levine and Vooch well, they continue to help Patrick Williams develop at the best that he can, then I think the Bulls have something going. I don't know if they're a title team or even a conference finals team, but given the Bulls history in the last five plus years basically ever since uh the d rose era essentially i think bulls fans would be pretty happy with a second round appearance at this point and like i said earlier you know that's not the philosophy i would like to go with if i was like building a team running a team but unless zach levine proves that he can sort of follow in devin booker's footsteps and be that that lethal scorer that leads the team to a deep playoff run i think the bulls just have to set their expectations at a realistic point and with Levine and Vooch as your two best players, you're probably not competing for a title. And that just is what it is. And you still have to maximize what you got. And so I think they can still be a really competitive team. I still think they could be a team that's like a really tough playoff exit if they're able to put the right pieces around Levine and Vooch. But 
they definitely aren't there yet. There's definitely a lot of work to be done, but I do trust AK. I think he's been a great hire for their front office. Getting rid of Garpax was essential, um, and they still have ownership of the team, but having uh, AK in there as the real decision maker in terms of roster moves and everything, they're headed in the right direction, in my opinion. I will add, though, that I don't think Billy Donovan is the right coach for this team long term. I don't think they should fire him for the same reason I talked about the Kings, the whole just continuity thing. It's it's just not worth it to fire him at this point. But if the Bulls are able to build out the roster to a point where they're ready to actually compete and try to win some playoff series, then I don't think Billy Donovan is the guy. I've never really been a huge fan of him. I thought his time in OKC was piss poor, to be honest with you. Uh, he was unable to maximize the talent there. His offensive sets were no better than Scott Brooks, who he replaced. Anything was better than Jim Boylan, don't get me wrong. Like, they have a better coach than they did before. But if they ever get to a point where it comes time to really win games, I don't think Billy Donovan's the right guy. I think he can be the guy that sort of creates a culture and, like, sets the tone for this team moving forward. But down the line, I think he's the guy that gets replaced for a higher-level head coach that can take this team to the next level. So that's really it for the Bulls. I'm going to talk about the Raptors next. They moved up in the lottery from number seven to number four, which is huge for them. I think there's a huge difference between the seventh pick and the fourth pick in this draft. And so just even if they don't end up making the pick just from a pure value perspective in a trade, that number four pick holds a hell of a lot more value than the number seven pick does. So that's huge for them. Obviously, uh, the biggest decision they're going to have to make, of course, is whether or not they're going to keep Kyle Lowry. It's also up to Kyle Lowry about whether or not he wants to return. I think it would make a whole lot of sense if he decides, you know what, I'm not really getting anywhere with the Raptors. This is the final stage of my career. I'm going to latch on to a contender and try to help them win a title. That would make complete sense, and I don't think Raptors fans would be salty if he ended up leaving. I think they have a lot of respect for him and what he's done for the organization. So either way, whether or not they bring him back, I still think they can be in a good position long term. I think I'd like to see him stay just for the sake of, you know, he really is the face of that organization and he's still a really high level player at the end of the day. However, more pressing than the point guard situation is the center situation. Uh, losing Marcus All and Serge Ibaka was just as crucial as everyone projected it to be and it was a big reason as to why the Raptors weren't as good as many expected. Now, having to play in the wrong country all season and having every single game be a road game, that probably factored in more so than anything else they definitely need to address the center situation i thought chris boucher had a great season i think he should have been in a most improved player candidate i thought the addition of kem birch was really huge for them i thought he fit in really well but ultimately i don't know if those two guys can really give you 48 minutes at the center spot each and every night so i'd like to see them bring in like a true seven footer both of those guys are a little bit undersized to play the center spot i think it's really valuable just having a true seven footer on your roster just someone that can bang against the biggest players in the league uh, help you with boards. I just think at least having at least one competent seven footer on your roster is really valuable in my opinion. So I think that is definitely a big need for them. Other than that, though, I really feel like the roster is very solid. I think Fred Van Vliet, OG, Siakam, the plethora of young guys that they have at the end of their rotation. Like I still think there's plenty of talent on this team. They just need to fill some holes. It's not a matter of they don't have the talent to compete. I think it's just some of their weaknesses are so glaring that they were able to get exploited this past season. Now, whether or not they can actually play in Canada for this upcoming season is going to have a huge impact. If they're forced to play in the wrong country again and not be able to play at their home arena, 
I can really imagine the type of impact that has just from a morale perspective. I hope for just for everyone involved that they're able to go back to Toronto. The fans really deserve it. Uh, you know, if they're able to get home games, I know that crowd is going to be absolutely insane every single game. To me, it's probably the difference between them being like a 6-7-8 seed versus like a 10-11-12 seed once again. I really think it has that much of an impact. They also have to, I would say decide, I guess, because it's not up to them, but Masai Ujiri's contract has run out and he's still yet to sign that extension. So there's been a lot of speculation about whether or not he's going to come back. Obviously, he he's been the architect of that team for a long time now. So he's really a crucial piece of that organization. Hopefully for their sake, he comes back. I know they have a lot of smart minds in that front office, but he's really spearheaded that for a long time now. So not being able to bring him back, I think, would be a pretty big blow. I think that they definitely are going to need his creativity and just his just his basketball acumen when it comes to filling out the rest of this roster. Because like I said, I think they have a lot of talented pieces, but they just need to fill in a few gaps. And so I think they got to do whatever it takes to make sure that Masai is the guy filling in those gaps for the roster. Now, in terms of what they do with that number four pick, if they are going to ultimately make a selection... I think Jalen Suggs has been basically the consensus fourth best prospect in this year's draft, and I think if they end up with him, they have to be really happy. I think he can step in right away and be one of the best rookies in this class right away. I think he pairs really well with Fred Van Fleet or Kyle Lowry. I think th that backcourt combo could work out, and I just think he's a really high-level player. I don't know if he has like superstar face of the franchise potential. But he probably has one of the highest floors in the draft. He's probably one of the safest picks. I feel more confident about him panning out as an NBA player than I do basically any other prospect, maybe outside of Kate Cunningham. So if they end up with Suggs at four, I think that's almost like a perfect bridge from Lowry into like the next this next generation for the Raptors. I personally don't think they should make a swing for any of those high ceiling wings, given that they already have OG and Siakam tied up. It doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to me for them to gamble on Kaminga or try to go for like Scotty Barnes or one of these other guys. Suggs fits in really well and given how safe of a pick he projects to be, I think he makes the most sense if they stay at number four. Now they also have to decide what they think Gary Trent Jr.'s market value is going to be. They traded away Norm Powell and Gary Trent Jr. got traded away because those teams both didn't feel comfortable with what they thought they were going to get on the open market. And generally when trades like this happen, teams end up re-signing those guys because they don't want to lose the asset, so to speak, and just let players walk without getting back anything in return. So chances are the Raptors do come to an agreement with Gary Trent Jr., but I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that someone else offers him a massive deal that the Raptors just don't feel comfortable matching. I think he's a really talented offensive player, and I think he can fit in well in the right role with the Raptors, but I think he's probably best off as an off-the-bench sort of like spark plug score kind of guy. And I personally wouldn't really feel comfortable giving like $20 million to that type of player. And it's been reported that his value could creep up as high as $20 million a year. So I think they need to look long and hard about how much money they're willing to offer him. Hopefully they don't lose him for nothing, but they also don't want to be stuck in a situation where they overpay for him as well. All right, so we got three more teams to talk about, the Cavs, the Magic, and the Pistons. I'm going to go with the Cavs first. So it's been reported recently that the Cavs are looking to trade Colin Sexton. They don't really want to have to offer him a massive extension, which makes sense because, like I said earlier with Miles Bridges, when you have a lottery pick that ends up panning out pretty well, those type of guys are generally looking for max or near max extensions. And I think the Cavs would be smart to recognize that Sexton's probably not a max contract type of player. And he also definitely doesn't pair well with Darius Garland, who has one more year than Sexton does on his rookie deal. So I think, you know, looking to trade Sexton 
Just seeing what's out there for him makes a lot of sense. I think the Cavs are smart to do their due diligence on that one. They also have that number three pick at their disposal. They're kind of in a tough spot with that number three pick if they don't trade Sexton. As much as they would love to add Kate Cunningham to this team, he's almost definitely going to be the number one pick. And then regardless of what the Rockets do, I don't think Jared Allen and Evan Mobley pair that well, although you could argue that Maybe Mobley's too talented for you to care about what Jared Allen can do for you. But I don't love that fit, and I would hate to see them have to trade away Jared Allen after getting him for such a low price. And then Jalen Green, especially if Colin Sexton's still on the team, he doesn't make a whole lot of sense either. You could make the same argument with uh, Green over Sexton as you would Mobley over Jared Allen. But ideally, you know, you want to draft a player that can already fit into what you have going on, unless it's like a Zion-level prospect, which... Maybe Kay Cunningham is, he probably isn't, but definitely the guys below him aren't. So you'd like for the guy that you draft to fit into what you already have going on, and I don't think the guys that are going to be available for them really do that. So they're in kind of a tough spot with that number three pick. I think they'll probably look to trade that pick just as hard as they look to trade Sexton, maybe even combining those two for a bigger asset. I also really like the idea of the Magic using that number five and that number eight pick to try to move up because I think the Magic could really use one of the top three guys in this draft, whether it's Mobley or Suggs or Green, one of those guys. I think that would be huge for them. But also, with the Cavs not really having a clear fit at uh, pick number three, I think getting two picks in the lottery could end up being better for them, because that allows them to maybe gamble on a high-risk prospect like a Kaminga, while also being able to find someone that fits in well. Like I think with that eighth pick, they can they can go for more of a safer pick, like a, maybe they reach for Corey Kispert or Moses Moody, just someone that they know, they can feel confident is going to come in and contribute and fits in well with the squad, while using that fifth pick on more of a risky guy that could blossom into a star. Regardless of what they do, though, they definitely need to add uh, some playmaking on the wing. I think that's probably the biggest hole that they need to fill. Garland, I think, is a pretty quality point guard. He's starting to develop into a really good shooter, a really good pick-and-roll playmaker. Okoro had a really good rookie year. He's already a really high-level defensive wing. The offensive end leaves a lot to be desired, but given how great of an athlete he is and how hard of a worker he is, I think there's reason to believe he can become a competent, complementary offensive player. Competent, complementary offensive player. It took me like six takes to get that right. So if they looked at trade Sexton and or that number three overall pick, they definitely got to find some talent on the wing. I used to be really high on Chetty Osman, but he just hasn't really panned out ever since LeBron left, basically. So they definitely need more talent other than just Isaac Okoro on the wing. I like Larry Nance Jr. a lot. I don't know if he's in their long-term plans, but I like him as a role player. But ultimately, they need, they need just more all-around talents. They have scorers in the backcourt. They got a rim protector in Jared Allen who doesn't do much offensively. Isaac Okoro is really an all-defense type of guy. They don't have many all-around talents. That's why I like Seti Osman a lot, because I thought he could do a little bit of everything. Turns out he does a lot of bit of nothing. So obviously not getting the number one pick is tough, because Cade Cunningham would have been a seamless fit for them. But they definitely have some assets to improve the roster. But transitioning into the Magic now, they definitely have some assets that they can use to improve the roster. Like I said, that number five and that number eight pick... They can either add two high-level rookies to their squad, or they can try to package those picks to go for a top three pick, or maybe add an NBA player that's ready to go now. There's a lot of possibilities, I think, because the number five pick is pretty valuable in this draft. There's at least five guys that many scouts think have superstar potential. And with that eighth pick, I think there's still a lot of value because in combination with the top five pick... Being able to pick at number eight just gives you a whole lot of flexibility. Like I like I was talking about earlier, if you have both of those picks, you can you can gamble on one guy while using the other pick on someone that you feel more confident about in their floor. 
So that combined with the fact that they have a lot of young talent on this roster now, there's a whole lot of future flexibility. It's just a matter of hiring the right coach and making sure that the front office and said head coach are in lockstep with what the identity is going to be for this team moving forward. They traded their three best players at the deadline this past year. It's a whole new era in Orlando now. And so they have to be able to create an identity and just have a plan for what the roster is supposed to look like down the line. I think with Fultz and Isaac coming back from their injuries, hopefully, of course, they're able to stay healthy. But those two guys combined with guys like RJ Hampton, Cole Anthony, I think there's a lot of talent on this team, a lot of young talent that can develop into really high-level players. But again, there has to be an identity. There has to be some real philosophies in place in terms of what the team's going to look like. It can't just be a bunch of 20 to 22-year-olds with basketball talent just running around out there. I personally think Markel Fultz, Cole Anthony, and RJ Hampton is a lot of overlap in the backcourt. I think two of those three guys can probably play together. I think it's probably Fultz with one of those two because I think Markel's big enough to where he can guard two guards. And maybe they just keep one of them as an off-the-bench guard and they can play all three of them. But more likely than not, the best version of this team doesn't have all three of them on it long-term. So that's something that we'll have to watch play out over the course of this next season. I'm really intrigued by Wendell Carter Jr. I think that he has the potential to be just as good as Nikola Vucevic was for the, the Magic over the course of his Magic tenure. So that trade for Vucevic has the potential to work out really well for the Magic. They're already getting a top 10 pick in addition to the Vucevic replacement, and they're going to get another first round pick most likely uh, in 2023. So as of right now, that trade's looking great for them. The Evan Fournier trade netted them two second round picks, which isn't much, but they weren't going to get anything for him anyway because he was an expiring contract. I think they feel pretty good about that one. Aaron Gordon netted them Gary Harris and a 2025 future first round pick. Gary Harris will be on an expiring deal this next season, so I think we will probably see him get traded for like some late picks. I think the Magic are doing a really good job in this first beginning phase of this new rebuild. Of course, they didn't really get anything out of the last rebuild, but they're off to a good start with this one so far. They've netted themselves a lot of assets with the fire sale that they had at last year's trade deadline. I think they already had some pretty solid pieces in place that they can build with. I want to throw Chuma Kiki's name out there. I don't really have much to say about him. I, I just like him, though, and I wanted to mention his name. Mo Bamba is interesting. Um, he started to play a little bit better after Vuch got traded. He finally showed some flashes of a guy that was worthy of a lottery pick. I still don't think he's going to pan out, but he'll definitely be given the opportunity, and it's worth waiting and seeing. You never know because, you know, a guy with those measurables definitely can have an impact in an NBA game. He just has to keep getting that developmental time, keep working on his skills, and there's still potential for him to be a rotational big in the league. All right, I know this has been a long episode. If any of you guys are still listening, I just want to say I really appreciate you guys taking the time to listen to my podcast. I know I'm just some random dude with an Instagram account that just talks about basketball, so I really appreciate you guys taking all the time to listen to me. I really hope you guys enjoy it. I hope you're sharing it with your friends. But let me get you guys out of here. We're going to talk about the Pistons real quick, and then we'll be done. So obviously, Detroit, they won the lottery. They have the number one pick in this year's draft. Everyone expects them to take Cade Cunningham, but there's this sort of weird sense that like maybe there's a chance they don't go with him. Maybe they trade the pick. Maybe they go with Mobley or something like that. I think it's completely fair for Troy Weaver to leave out the possibility that Cade Cunningham won't be the number one pick. Because for one, it opens up the the potential for teams to offer the Pistons really big trade packages for that number one pick. If it was just a sure thing that the Pistons wanted Cade, then the trade value for that pick wouldn't be as high if they were just giving their hand away. So I think they're going about it in the right way, although I do think that they're going to end up taking Cade. It just makes the most sense. 
I think Mobley is a really good fit as well. But if I were a GM, I'd rather be wrong about Cade Cunningham than wrong about Evan Mobley. I just think there's inherently more risk with drafting a big man than there is drafting a ball handler. And when said ball handler is six foot eight and has incredible court vision and all the skills that Cade Cunningham has, it's probably just the safer gamble to go with him over a big man who isn't seen as this like consensus number one guy. And you look at the roster that the Pistons have right now with Killian Hayes, Sadiq Bey, Jeremy Grant, Isaiah Stewart, Saban Lee. I think Kay Cunningham can come in and fit in perfectly as like the lead guy on that team. I think the Pistons really have the perfect combination of having enough talent to where Cade can come in and especially long term, they can be a good team. But also the guys on the roster are young and unproven enough to the point where Cade can come in and be established as the clear number one guy, the clear franchise option, because they did draft Killian Hayes to sort of be their guy at the point guard spot at the number seven pick last year. But they can draft Cade number one overall and really focus on him as the center of the franchise. I think he can elevate the guys on that roster really well. That's really sort of what Cade Cunningham does. It's really what makes him such an intriguing prospect. So I think he's the smart choice for the Pistons. Outside of that, I think they just have a really good future core in place. Those guys I just mentioned with Hayes, Sadiq Bey, Isaiah Stewart, Saban Lee, even Jeremy Grant, even though he's on the other side of 25, I guess. Those are all guys that they can build with long term past their rookie deals and past Jeremy Grant's current deal to where if and when Kate Cunningham blossoms into that star that most people are projecting him to be, all of those guys fit in super well with what Cade Cunningham can do. I think Killian Hayes and Cade Cunningham in the backcourt together works extremely well. They both want the ball in their hands, but they're neither of them are incompetent off the ball. Hayes a little bit more than Cunningham, but I think, you know, an ideal world that definitely does work together. I think Sadiq Bey is the perfect complementary wing in this league. He's already a really good shooter. He's already a high level defender. He's going to be so solid for the next 10 to 12 years. Probably not as good as Mikhail Bridges is going to be, but I think, you know, like the tier below that, I think he's going to fill that same role as like the third option on a really good team or maybe the fourth option because Aiton's playing like a beast. But he fits in really well uh, basically on any team. But with Cade Cunningham, I think that's a good fit. I think Jeremy Grant covers a lot of holes defensively while also proving that he can be a capable scorer of his own. Isaiah Stewart, he made the all-rookie teams this year for good reason. He he plays with such high energy, and he rebounds well on both ends of the floor. I think he has the potential down the line to be a bit of a floor spacer as well as being a rim runner. Saban Lee, I think, is a really good backup guard. He had an impressive rookie year. I'm honestly really impressed with the team that Detroit has been able to build in seemingly no time at all. It didn't feel like very long ago that they were trapped in the hellhole of having a, a Blake Griffin, Andre Drummond frontcourt, not to mention losing Christian Wood to free agency. They've managed to really turn the outlook of that franchise around. And of course, winning the lottery and getting the number one pick always is going to help in that regard. But I think Troy Weaver has done a tremendous job since he's been hired. And I think the Pistons have a pretty bright future. So that'll do it for this episode. I just wanted to sort of, you know, get back in touch with the teams that didn't make the playoffs. I feel like, you know, we've kind of forgotten about them in the last month or so with how great these playoffs have been. My next episode will probably be a finals preview. Um, I'll let you know now I'm predicting the Suns and the Bucks, which I know is not exactly a hot take given that the Suns are up 3-1 right now and the Bucks just absolutely throttled the Hawks in game two. And I'll wait until we actually see what the matchup is before I give a finals prediction, but just know that I'm rocking with the Valley Boys. So again, that'll do it for this episode. Once again, thank you guys so much for listening. I really appreciate all your support. It means the world to me. Please like, share, subscribe, do all the podcast stuff that everyone tells you to do, all the algorithm stuff. It really means a lot. It really helps out. Thanks once again for listening, and I'll talk to you guys next time.